This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today we look at the role of education in achieving the Sustainable Development Goals. My guest is Parfait Ilandu, Professor and Department Chair of Development Sociology at Cornell University and member of the independent group of scientists writing the Global Sustainable Development Report. I spoke with Parfait during a break at the UNESCO Global Education Meeting held in Brussels in early December. I think education is really a very strong candidate and that's why I was excited to be here and to see how not only uh, we can revamp, revive uh, the rural education, but also to see how it links with other institutions in, in societies. In our conversation, Parfait calls wealth inequality, demographic changes, and parental choices the perfect storm of inequality. Education plays an important role in overcoming this social trifecta of disparity. I think the first role is to train them and train them well. Uh, and by this, you mean uh, quality of education in classic um, skills, but also uh, increasingly embracing uh, soft skills and new skills that are in demand in the labor market. Then uh, education systems may be called to actually take one step further and get involved in facilitating the transition from school to work. We also discussed the assumption of meritocracy in education and the lack of a class analysis in the SDGs. Parfait Ulundu, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. So here we are sitting in Brussels at the Global Education Meeting. And I just want to start by a very general question. How would you define sustainability? What does sustainability mean to you? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I mean, sustainability, I'd say, is taking the long-term view uh, on development and paying attention to the um, uh, uh, different kind of standard, not just immediate goals, but the extent to which um, different nations and the world as a whole can sustain uh, whatever uh, we are trying to accomplish. And you can think of sustainability along two dimensions. One is uh, the environmental side, which is preserving the natural life systems. Uh, and the other is the social sustainability. That is, you can keep, keep societies um, in sync, um, uh, in harmony. Uh, you can maintain the social contract, keep everyone engaged, keep institutions viable, and so forth. So what role does education play in the understanding of sustainability in terms of the environment, but also the social side? What, where does education fit into that picture? Uh, broadly speaking, you can think of education as an institution that is designed to transmit knowledge, values, and therefore to reproduce and to innovate. And so education is therefore a mechanism for societies to project themselves into the future. By passing on the skills to the current generation, you give yourself as a society the means to survive and to thrive uh, as you move on. And so there are different things that you want to pass on um, and, 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 and allow for change and innovation at the same time. And so these things include, again, as I said, this, the skills, the technology, uh, the value, the knowledge, um, values of citizenship, values of stewardship, um, etc. And so uh, education is really vital as a mechanism for reproduction and for projecting yourself into the future. 
Is, in your opinion, education a panacea to some of these problems that face the world of climate change or, you know, the decline of the social contract or of the rise of nationalism or all the different social ills that we see and environmental ills that we see in the world? Is, in your opinion, is education sort of this panacea? Well, panacea is a strong word, but uh, education is uh, very much a powerful instrument. Uh, it cannot be a panacea because the relative importance of it is going to uh, vary from one place to the other, or the different forms of education are going to vary. And so there would be times when education is the most potent force for transmitting skills, but you can also have societies that are organized um, uh, in ways that would pass on skills and technology and know-how outside the a formal education system. But if you consider the today's world out of all of the possible institutions that you can rely on to advance the SDGs as we think of them now, I think education is really a very strong candidate. And that's why I was excited to be here and to see how not only uh, we can revamp, revive uh, the rural education, but also to see how it links with other institutions in, in, in societies. You know, one of the things that I sometimes get confused about with the Sustainable Development Goals is, on the one hand, there is this effort to achieve economic growth mm -hmm. as a way of taking more people out of poverty, increasing material benefits to people around the world. But a lot of that growth requires the burning of fossil fuels and all sorts of extraction of materials from the natural earth, mm -hmm. which seems to counter the push towards environmental sustainability, which is another goal of the SDG. So to me, it's very hard to keep those two ideas simultaneously in my mind. Mm -hmm. And that's to some extent the creative tension that the world as a whole must negotiate. And uh, scientists in particular play a role in helping everyone think about how these two competing all these seemingly competing objectives can come together. And they're not actually two, they're three. On the one hand, you want to foster growth, but you want to foster growth that is inclusive and growth that is, let's say, green in, in the sense that it preserves the environment. And that's not an easy thing to do. And so I think the challenge is to find solutions that sort of thread the needle between these three competing uh, objectives. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, and I look at like um, the protests in France right now, the yellow jacket protests, yeah. and I just wonder, you know, growth doesn't seem to be inclusive. There yeah. seems to be a lot of people, a huge amount of people around the world that are being sort of excluded from the growth in the economy that we do see. We are seeing growth, mm -hmm. economic growth around the world, but only for a few people. Yeah. It seems like that inequality is just really preventing the ability to have inclusive growth? Yes, um, I think you're right on two fronts. The first front is just what you say about the rise in inequality, which is a trend that is almost worldwide, um, especially when we talk about inequality within countries. Uh, I think historically, at least over the last 30 years, what has seemed to happen is that at the same time as the inequality between countries has kind of shrunk a little, their massive rise in inequality within countries. And so that is uh, really a challenge. The second point that you actually rightly point to is the fact that um, growth 
or at least inequality uh, can become an impediment to growth. Um, you know, let's say 50 years ago, the tendency was to assume that if we just grow the pie, if we just grow the economy, if we take uh, care of uh, uh, GDP growth, everything else is going to fall in place. Then you moved into a regime in which, well, people kind of acknowledge grudgingly that well, as the same time as you take care of growth, you also have to worry about inequality. But now we are reaching a, a stage where the relationship is actually sort of maybe running in the reverse direction. That is actually inequality may be a first order question uh, that needs to be addressed before you can even think about growth. Uh, otherwise, you may not have the circumstances, the conditions, the, the safety, the social contract, the trust, the 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 uh, peace that you need to make any plans for sustainable growth. You, in your talk today, you mentioned issues of demography. Uh-huh. How does demography fit into this issue of inequality? Well, uh, <laughs> I think if you take demography in a very simple um, understanding of, let's say, the number of people, and if you take the Bentham notion of the ultimate goal being achieving the greatest good for the many, uh, it follows that demography is a, a great piece of the SDGs equation. Equation. Most of the indicators that you'll see are rates or ratios in which you have population as a denominator. So we want to increase literacy rate, you know, the fraction of people who are uh, can read um, or, and write uh, vis-a-vis the number of, of the total population the um, malnutrition rates, um, mortality rates, all these are basically questions of access relative to the number of people. And so you have to watch um, the two pieces of the equation, that is the services that you provide, the goods that you produce, versus um, the people who are entering the system. So we just, we, I mean, on the one hand, yes, we want to provide the services and better services like education and health and everything else the SDGs propose. But at the same time, we need to think about that denominator, about the total number of people in this world and that this world, it would be unsustainable to have, say, 50 billion people living on this planet, for instance. <laughs> for instance, yes, yes. And so, but it's not always, uh, that's a starting point. Uh, that is to maintain some kind of balance between uh, the resources and, and people. But the denominator itself is also a little bit complicated. Uh, I think out of a total population, you still need to consider questions about the composition and starting very simply with age composition. So in a population where you have a majority of people who are extremely young uh, so as not to be able to work, it's a different proposition than if you have a larger share of the population in your adult working ages. And so you have to consider composition, not just in terms of age, but also in terms of education. So raising the levels of education, um, uh, and so forth. So population is both the numbers, but also the, the composition. Yeah, and, and different countries and regions would have different sort of composition. So in Japan, for instance, where I live, yeah. it is a, the composition is heavily skewed towards older people. Oh, right. And they're having problems of paying for social security systems and, and the like. But of course, other regions sort of have a youth bulge. bulge yes, yes. And the question is, well, what do these 
children when they become adults yes. do in yes. this world. So can you talk a little bit about maybe that sort of phenomenon, the, the youth bulge in some, yeah, yeah, yeah. some regions of the world? Yeah, you're right. The notion of a youth bulge is basically this situation where you have a large proportion of the population that is in the young adult ages. Um, and so just to, to stress that population in itself is, doesn't give you the full picture. So these young people uh, have are a potential uh, strength in terms of uh, the economy if they are put to work. Mm. On the other hand, if they are not put to work, if they have very limited prospects for employment, they become a source of instability and, and insecurity. And so population is always in that sort of uh, contingent situation where its impact in a given society is going to depend on what you make of it. And so what is the role of education in helping these countries with the youth bulge allow the children move from school to work? Very, very, very good question. I think the first role is to train them and train them well. Uh, and by this, you mean uh, quality of education in classic um, skills, but also uh, increasingly embracing uh, soft skills and new skills that are in demand in the labor market. Then uh, education systems may be called to actually take one step further and get involved in facilitating the transition from school to work. Uh, and this is a topic on which I've worked a little bit and it's, it's quite uh, a concern in many countries in Latin America and as well in sub-Saharan Africa uh, because you have large cohorts of young people who have really completed a course of education but having a very difficult time finding employment. And so there are many uh, things that happen during that phase. Um, to begin, you have a loss of skills. If you stay out of the labor force for a long time, uh, you may not have the opportunity to acquire new skills. It's a period of stress if you're looking for employment and not really knowing when the next job is going to, to be available. It's also a loss of identity um, in many ways because having lost the identity or the label of a student, now you don't really have any fallback identity to, um, to carry. And so that can be a problem, not to mention all the, um, the risks that are involved uh, associated with being idle. So if you leave, you take young adults who leave school at 20, 21, this is an age of, of risk and decision-making of choices uh, regarding your health, regarding your um, consumption, um, diet, uh, and so forth. And so making the right choices at this juncture of their life cycle is pretty important. And unless they're well accompanied, um, I think it's a, it's a very delicate period. Yeah, and, and it makes me think about sort of what we call today the gig economy yeah. and how, you know, the service sector is so massive in many parts of the world. Yeah. And part of those services are basically taking one-off jobs to deliver food or to do an Uber or what, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And so I just wonder how, you know, how is the gig economy sort of impacting that work or that school to work transition? Well, I think the, um, the flow of information, I mean, to be able to take advantage of that uh, sort of fluid work environment, you have to have a very strong flow of information so that at least uh, the young would-be workers know where the opportunities are and can actually um, try to compete. 
Uh, that's not always the case in the countries that are having the largest youth bulge. And so that's one uh, first issue. The other issue that I'd like to mention briefly is, I think, when you think about uh, life trajectories and uh, career trajectories, there's really been a great elevation of aspirations. I think today's young adults are very creative. <clears throat> the world is their oyster. And so they no longer peg their dreams to the, the, the local environment. I think they dream big and they dream wide and they dream far. Uh, and so the restrictions to their local environment become even more restrictive and or, or at least felt as being extremely restrictive. That must partly be a result of the very education system. In part, yes. I mean, it must, it creates sort of this aspirational, this sort of competitive sort of environment among youth thinking, how do I get ahead? And yeah. so sometimes that might mean crossing borders or getting into that sort of global yeah. upper class. Yeah, in that global upper class, uh, which again uh, is partly a fiction. And so the education system plays a part in terms of building these aspirations, but you also have the um, mass media, uh, the internet, and so you get exposed to sort of a, a virtual dimension of that global middle class, which uh, again is partly a fiction. Yeah. It seems like the issue of class is so important mm -hmm. in thinking about sustainability. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, do you, you know, is UNESCO and the UN and all of the work that's being done on SDGs, in your opinion, are they bringing in the issue of class well enough? Like, or is that something that needs a little bit more thought? Yeah, it definitely needs a lot more thought. Uh, uh, to begin, class has both purely economic and then a cultural dimension. And so if we just consider uh, the economic dimension, that is just consider the different economic clusters or the different salary ranges, I think the discussions of class uh, or the discussions of inequality have for a long time shied away from relative disparities and relative deprivation and just focus on absolute deprivation. In other words, don't worry about the top 1%, don't worry about the top 5%, just worry about the bottom um, 10% and make sure that uh, you have as few people as, as you can that live under a dollar a day or two dollars a day, right? And so that has been part of the, the um, I wouldn't say obfuscation, but at least part of um, the, the orientation. But it's for whatever it's worth, um, there's just a tremendous yearning for uh, a better future for everybody. Uh, in my, all my years working in development, I have never, I have yet to see somebody who would be happy to live with $2 a day. You know, you get them to $2 a day or $5 and they, they, and they say, you know, that's it, I'm fine, I'm good, you can rest <laughs> easy, I'll stay here for the rest of my life. I've never personally seen that. Me neither. Right. And so that to me brings the, the need to sort of confront um, head on the relative deprivation and the extent to which people can achieve mobility and the terms under which that mobility is achieved the extent to which the so-called American dream, which is basically a universal dream, 
which is if you work hard enough, if you apply your talent, if you play by the rules, if you're dedicated enough, you can aspire to a better future. Your children can aspire mm. to a better future. And so that dream um, is, uh, <laughs> if not deferred, I mean, different people have used different terms. Some have, you know, as the poet has said, dream deferred. Some have seen it as hijacked. But it's, it's becoming less and less to attain. Um, but what remains, however, and what is sometimes problematic, I don't know, I mean, it can be seen as problematic, is the illusion of a dream. Mm. I think once you, if there was just a clear acknowledgement and a clear understanding, a shared understanding, that I think the realistic expectation that you ought to have if you you know, meet circumstances A, B, and C, and C and D would be to reach, let's say, you know, this income level. And that's the bar. Uh, and we set a realistic bar. Uh, I think it might be a slightly better situation than to, to, than to dangle these exceptional success stories that are interesting, are, um, can be inspiring, but are very, 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 very rare. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. is that the, there is a sort of myth of meritocracy. A, a myth of meritocracy and a myth of extreme mobility. It's both, you know, there's this uh, uh, misconception or overestimation of how far you can go. And at the same time, as there's a uh, need to debate the terms under which people experience that mobility. And I guess what's sometimes frustrating about discourses on education mm -hmm. is that the, it, the, it, there's an assumed belief in meritocracy yes, in yes, the yes, idea yes. of education yes. that, you know, if you just try hard and yeah. you do well and you increase your test scores, yeah, yeah. you will get better jobs, you will have better lives, yeah. you will, you will re be rewarded with what you can receive or what you deserve because of the hard work you, that you put in. And sometimes I feel that that sort of assumption goes uncritiqued. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, education tries, the education system by and large tries its best, otherwise it wouldn't really retain uh, any credibility whatsoever. But it's true, we have to recognize that the system is not a sort of perfect meritocracy. I mean, I remember even though I, even before I could co consciously formulate these ideas as a seven-year-old growing up in Cameroon, having very good grades. I was uh, had excellent grades throughout my entire curriculum, but at the same time, knowing full well that I had many friends that I knew were smarter than me, but for some reason didn't get uh, good grades. And so to me, it was always a problem. I said, I just could not understand, reconcile the two, the belief in meritocracy, but also the awareness of my close friend's intelligence. And so I think the way you make sense of it is that the school system recognizes some forms of intelligence at the expense um, of others. Uh, sometimes those forms of intelligence that are recognized may be functional, i.e. Uh, for society, that is the skills or the talents that are most useful in society at a given point, but sometimes it may not really be the case. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, and so the real debate is to what, number one, to what extent what we learn in school is really what you need to learn to be a good worker, to be a good citizen, to be a good parent, to be a good neighbor, 
and B, uh, to what extent the school system sort of sets a level playing field in which um, everybody gets treated the same. I said before that teachers and school systems really try hard. I can say because I've been a, a teacher for a long time, but at the same time, you have all these unconscious biases that creep in. I mean, if you see a student you know, always toy <laughs> with these ideas and you have to fight against that constantly. If you see a student wearing glasses and looking sort of uh, poised and, and attentive during your classes, there's a tendency to assume that they're a good student or a smart student. On the other hand, if you see a student in a sort of slumped in, in their chair, um, you, you may make a different kind of inference. And it may well be that this is a super smart student who happened to just be bored by your class. And so um, and this is just one example. And you have all the other circumstances and baggage and disadvantage that students bring into the class, uh, you know, the family environment where they come from, the background, uh, the neighborhoods they come from, the resources or lack of that they bring to, to the classroom, make it difficult for schools to be a perfect meritocracy. And so how to fix that is quite a challenge. Well, Parfait Ilandu, we'll have to answer that question another time. So thank you very much for joining Freshette. It really was a pleasure to talk. Oh, it was a pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. Parfait Ilandu is a professor of development sociology at Cornell University. Today's episode of Freshette was made possible through the support of the Graduate School of Education and Education International. Please note that opinions expressed on Freshette are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. And original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.